if your ideal of the good person is somebody who just doesn't care how they're perceived in communities of other people, then you'll have no place for shame and honor uh, in your way of thinking about the good life. But on the other hand, to, to say that we don't traffic in shame and honor anymore, I think gets it all wrong. I think we're, we're trafficking in shame, uh, perhaps more, more so now than ever before. Welcome to the Wisdom Conviction Podcast. My name is Tim Yohoff. I'm a professor of communication here at Biola University in La Mirada, California, and the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. And my name is Rick Langer, and I'm the co-director with Tim, and I'm also a professor of the Biblical Studies and Theology Department and the director of the Office of Faith and Learning. And we have been having a great time talking with people about talking with people. And one of the folks that... Uh, Tim and I both know his friend and colleague here at Biola is a guy named Greg Tanelshoff, and I'm holding here uh, his new book entitled For Shame, Discovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. And it's a really interesting book about the idea of shame. And we were looking at this, we'd heard Greg had written it, and we thought, man, we should bring Greg in to talk about this, because it's actually a rather interesting topic in our cultural moment about what happens when we communicate with one another. And we talk about shame, we talk a lot about these things. Though I have to admit, Greg, when I saw the title, I thought, how do you get interested in writing a book about the topic of shame? I'm, I'm picturing myself waking up on a nice, you know, Friday morning, <laughs> the sun's shining, the birds are chirping, and I, I think I'll write a book on shame. Defending so, shame. Defending, defending shame. shame. Yeah. So give us a little account of what got you thinking down these lines and, and motivated to actually dive in at a, the deep level that you have. Yeah, well, uh, let me say thank thank you first for uh, bringing me on your show. It's a privilege to be here. This is the pinnacle of your career right here, Greg. I feel it. It, it is going to be all <laughs> downhill. It's all downhill from here, yeah. After this. Uh, let's see. So uh, for a number of years, I had been thinking and writing about Confucianism and classical um, Chinese philosophy in general. And uh, if you know anything about uh, Chinese philosophy, you know that shame and honor uh, loom large in Chinese wisdom, and that shame and honor have important work to do in those traditions in the formation of healthy uh, communities and healthy persons. And so I was sort of steeped in that literature and, and fascinated by it and thinking about how we can port wisdom from the Confucian tradition into the way of Jesus following. And I started to um, be aware of this uh, growing um, body of literature that was staunchly anti-shame, a kind of anti-shame uh, literature that was, uh, it was Christian literature, secular literature. There was a sort of growing chorus of voices suggesting that uh, while guilt uh, had important work to do in the formation of healthy communities, shame was somehow intrinsically uh, toxic, uh, that, it was, that it was a bad business altogether, mm -hmm. and that we should uh, do our best to eradicate shame from the range of felt human emotions. And steeped in the Confucian literature as I was, this this came to me as initially uh, sort of absurd. Uh, certainly it would seem absurd uh, to a Confucian perspective. So I started to, I got curious and I wondered, what, why is it uh, that, that shame is under such attack? And that, that brought me into a, uh, the attempt to defend it. And by the way, that uh, resulted in a phenomenal book called Confucius for Christians, uh, that you've also written. It's just a great example of how we can learn from other faith traditions. I honestly just quoted it in a, a new book that I have coming out as an example 
of how we can, what a great job you do modeling of what it can look like to learn from God's general revelation. So seriously, Confucius for Christians is an awesome book, and kudos for writing that as well. Thank you, Tim. It, one of the things, so Greg and I both share a philosophy background, and I wanted to give you a little uh, moment of, of uh, celebration and good on you sort of thing about one of the things I think philosophers tend to do well or can do well is to define things carefully. And the danger of that sometimes you sound like you're nitpicking or just, you know, talking about kind of nuanced semantic issues. Um, I was chatting with Tim beforehand and I said, you know, one of the things I thought you did really masterfully was the definition task, but you avoided the thing of just making the, these definitional distinctions just kind of be the thin edge of the wedge and then you go on and do something else. Mm. You kind of dove in and said, well, wait a minute. These are distinct notions. Now let's see where this leads us. And I think you laid that open well. But we're thinking it might be good for us to begin by letting you unpack a little bit of the definitional question because that, at least to me, seemed to be enormously important. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it's the right place to start. Uh, so uh, the word shame, um, like the words that we use for so many emotional states, n- names both an objective uh, condition and a subjective or emotional um, affective state. So to understand shame, you have to think along both of these tracks. On the objective side, uh, to fall into shame is to be socially discredited. It's, it's to, it's to uh, become a person of, of lesser consequence or lesser significance in a community of other people. We have, we have metaphors like um, losing face or losing social credit or something like that. And that's an objective condition. It, it can happen whether or not you feel anything, whether or not you even know it's happening. It can happen while you're asleep on Twitter. You can, you can be yeah. socially discredited. So it's just an objective uh, condition uh, to fall into shame. On the subjective side, the affective or emotional side, to feel shame is to feel the pain associated with that, uh, that condition. So if you lose standing, if you lose, if you come, if you become a person of lesser consequence in a community of people that matters to you, that'll hurt, uh, that'll sting, and that particular kind of hurt or sting is uh, felt shame, and it's sometimes instructive just to have the um, the opposite concept in front of you. So honor is the opposite of shame. To, on the objective side, to be honored is to become a person of greater consequence, to acquire social standing or social credit. And again, that can happen whether you're aware of it or not. It can happen while you're asleep on Twitter, uh, uh, whatever. And to feel honored is the opposite of to feel shame. To feel honored is to feel that pleasant emotion that accompanies increased standing in communities that you care about. And so those, th- that's, uh, that's uh, how I think shame and honor have been classically understood. And I assume, well, perhaps I actually know that part of why you were making those distinctions is that, that there's other definitions of shame that are floating around right now that are perhaps, perhaps some of the distance between what you're advocating for and what others have advocated for actually go back to the fact that we're operating with two different definitions of shame. Is that the case? And if so, unpack the other definition and point out where you're at odds. Yeah, the, um, there are different, if they were just different, um, 
the, the problem wouldn't be so deep. I mean, we could just say here are two different definitions. We're, we're speaking different languages, uh, so be it. But they're, they're, they're different but overlapping in important ways. And because the, the definitions are different but overlapping, there's the occasion for a lot of miscommunication yeah. and confusion. So if you've been taught that uh, shame, the, the subjective feeling of shame, is somehow uh, toxic or unhealthy um, or destructive uh, intrinsically, it's probably because you've been taught to, f to confuse shame with other self-directed uh, emotions and attitudes like low self-esteem or um, uh, self-loathing or failures of self-respect. And if you've been taught to define shame as a failure of, of self-respect, as a kind of um, uh, uh, negative self-esteem, well then of course shame will be toxic. Because mm -hmm. low self-esteem is toxic, and self-loathing is toxic, and a failure to respect yourself is toxic. Uh, um, but uh, I've suggested uh, the op one way to see that that's, that's a, a confused way to think about shame is just to think about the opposite. The opposite of shame has always been and is supposed to be honor, mm -hmm. uh, not um, healthy self-respect or a healthy uh, self-image. One more thing about that. So the, over, the, re the reason there's overlap is because it's become a trope in the literature to point out that guilt as an emotion takes aim at a behavior and shame as an emotion takes aim at the self. And that's true. Uh, uh, to feel shame is to feel something not about what you've done, but to feel something about yourself, to feel yourself as a person of lesser significance in a community of other people. To feel guilt is to feel an, a negative emotion about something you've done. So there is that important um, uh, overlap between the classical definition and what I think is a confused definition in much of the literature. So can I bring up, uh, have you react to a quote? I'm sure this has never been brought up, but we do our homework here at the Winsome Conviction podcast. Uh, you probably have never heard of Kurt Thompson, his book, <laughs> his book called The Soul of Shame. And here's a quote he has, and just, and again, we're not here to attack people, but he has written a, a, a pretty popular book. Um, and this is what he says. Guilt is something I feel because I have done something bad. Shame is something I feel because I am bad. So what, what do you like about that? What would you take issue with that? Well, I, yeah. So what's right about that is it's calling attention to this uh, difference I was just describing, that, mm -hmm. that guilt takes aim at a behavior and shame takes aim at the self. <clears throat> what I don't like about it is that it, it, it confuses shame with self-loathing. Uh, mm. To feel that you are bad uh, is, to, is to be caught up in a kind of self-loathing or a failure of self-respect. Here's a, here's a subtly different thing. I am... Uh, I, I am uh, per perceived as bad in a community that matters to me, right? That is, that's shame, mm. right? I, I, am, I am being looked at as uh, I've been diminished in the eyes of the people that care about me. And of course, it's a, it's a hard thing. If, if you think that you're um, being thought of as a bad person, it's famously difficult not to think of yourself as a bad person mm. because we're so deeply affected by the way we're perceived by other people. Yeah. So shame, shame. One of the reasons that shame is uh, can be so destructive is because it leads so easily to uh, failures of self-respect, uh, low self-esteem, self-loathing, and all of the rest. Um, but the fact that shame often leads to those things isn't a reason for conflating the two. Okay. Well, and I, to in a similar context, 
Brene Brown offers this definition of shame, an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Now, when I read that definition, to me, it feels as if it's almost written to assure that it is, by definition, bad and toxic. But I, I'm puzzled why that would automatically be the meaning of shame or why would be even inclined to agree with it. And I'm suspicious, back to your observation earlier about Confucianism, that some of this is just an artifact of a Western culture that really doesn't have a lot of imagination for things like honor. We are unconcerned with pleasing the, the crowd. We make an identity thing to be individualistic. And so the whole honor-shame discourse is kind of lost on us or we see it from afar and we're really susceptible to kind of false presentations of it because we don't kind of naturally traffic in it. Is that accurate or? Yeah, I think it's a complicated question. Uh, certainly the post-Enlightenment West uh, caught up as it is in uh, individualism. And, and in the American context especially, where sort of rugged individualism is part of the ideal, it's very difficult uh, to make imaginative space for uh, shame and honor. I mean, you, you'll you only care about shame and honor if you care about how you're thought of in other in Right. It in, doesn't in work community. without yeah. that concern. Yeah. That's right. So so you have to have that concern for the the perception of other people. And if your if your ideal of the good person is somebody who just doesn't care how they're perceived in communities of other people, then you'll have no place for shame and honor uh, in your way of thinking about the good life. But on the other hand, to, to say that we don't traffic in shame and honor anymore, I think gets it all wrong. I think we're, we're trafficking in shame, uh, perhaps more, more so now than ever before. Talk to us a little bit more about that. How do you see that playing out in the, in the kind of our contemporary moment here? Yeah, my, my own view is that we, uh, in our contemporary moment, in here I'm thinking of the, the contemporary Anglo West, um, We've gotten things exactly backwards. Uh, we're, we're extremely suspicious of shame as an emotion, uh, thinking that it's toxic and we do well to eradicate it from the range of um, human experience. And we're accepting of, sometimes embracing of, shaming as mm. an activity. Mm. Uh, uh, and, I, and I think that's exactly backwards. I think we should be extremely suspicious of shaming as an activity uh, and less suspicious than we are of uh, shame. shame. Yeah. Can you define shaming real quick? Uh, the distinction between shame and shaming? Yeah, so uh, shame again is either this um, objective condition of being socially discredited or the, the painful uh, feeling that accompanies that. To, to shame someone, uh, uh, the shaming as an activity, is trying to bring those conditions on another person. Right. So, so if, if I shame you, Tim, what I'm mm. trying to do is I'm trying to bring it about that you're a person of lesser consequence mm. in a community of other mm -hmm. people, or I'm trying to bring it about that you feel like a person of lesser consequence in a community of other people. And I think that's a very difficult thing to do in the service of love. It's mm. very difficult uh, uh, to try to make someone a person of lesser consequence in, in communities that matter as an act of love to that person. And that's why we should be so suspicious of shaming. Uh, as an and, and so when you think about this in our contemporary world, what I'll just say what pops into my mind as I hear you talking is we, so we sometimes call it the cancel culture and people debate about whether that's a good phrase or not, but the concept of what goes on in social spaces like Facebook or 
Twitter or things like that seems to me to be kind of a quintessential example of shaming um, and with a very unclear relationship to shame, I guess. And maybe you could help me on, or perhaps I'm thinking the wrong of, of a wrong analogy there, but that's what comes to my mind. Is, is that how it's being manifested? Is, is social media one of these big contexts where we're doing that? Yeah, I think it is. It is just shaming, plain and simple, what's okay. happening. Uh, <laughs> Let's not make it complicated. Yeah, in, in that culture, whatever you call it. It's, it's, it's the attempt in the service of a, of a cause or a social program or whatever. It's the attempt to make a particular person or agency or institution or whatever um, a, a, a person of lesser consequence. And uh, what's happened in social media, you know, in, in the good old days when you just had to do this with communication with the people around you, when you shamed somebody, it was kind of in a controlled environment. You, you, can, you, could, you, uh -huh. could, you could cause them to be a person of lesser consequence, but only in a sort of narrowly defined community of people, the people that could hear you, as it were, right? Um, with social media, the power to shame has, has been boosted. Right? So this, this thing that was already a pretty powerful instrument in human interactions has become an immensely more powerful instrument in human interaction because the audience is unlimited. Now with a few characters, I can, I can if I have the right kind of voice, I can make you a monster in the eyes of all respectable human uh, you know, company. And that's a power that shame has never had in the history of uh, the human Think race. about Proverbs, life and death and the power of the tongue. Um, Greg, I wonder if I could throw out a test case to you to see, uh, put, the, put these uh, definitions to a test. Uh, a verdict just came out in which uh, Jesse Smollett uh, was convicted on like four counts of uh, a hate crime. He staged a hate crime. He faked it. For whatever reason, who knows, but he staged it. Police were investigating it. used a lot of time, resources, energy, money. And then it, uh, it came out that the two people who he incorporated later came out and said, we were paid to do it. So now the police are coming in and saying, well, we're, we're going to take you to court because you, you should have to at least pay for all the money, time, and resources we spent. Um, but then also, it's against the law to, to do this, to lie about this and stage it. So now he's been found guilty and is obviously being demonized. Um, so is, how, how do we relate to that? Should he be shamed for what he did? And is that shaming if I do that? And what would be the appropriate critique of him without bleeding into shaming? If I understand the case right, it, it sounds to me like he should be brought to justice. He did, and he was convicted. Yeah, insofar as he's done something wrong. And that that, all by itself, will affect his shame. Uh, he'll, he'll be a, if, if you're convicted of a felony, you will, as a matter of fact, in respectable company, for better or worse, be a person of lesser, comp uh, of lesser consequence. And he's an actor, and so that has been uh, from That's the... Right. Series Empire. So my guess yeah. is the person you're describing doesn't need anybody to shame him. Uh, he he, he <laughs> yeah. will, as a as a matter of fact, because he's been convicted of a felony. Mm -hmm. Even if you, if you're convicted mm -hmm. of a felony and you're innocent, you'll be you'll be you'll experience shame. You'll mm -hmm. be a person of lesser consequence for having a felony mm -hmm. on your record, mm -hmm. and that'll hurt. Uh, so as I think of it, uh, he he has he is in fact undergoing shame as a consequence of his of this verdict. And if his emotions are tracking reality, 
he probably is feeling shame. He's probably feeling the pain of that. Let, let's run with this a little bit. I, I think I'd like to talk about some of these issues in, in a little more depth because I think they're super relevant to the things that we talk about a lot here about how we communicate in our kind of contemporary communication climate and our communication context where social media is so, so prominent. Let me pick up the idea of the hashtag MeToo movement, which in, in many ways I, I thought was a good thing. You see these things come about Harvey uh, Wettstein and you know, various other people, and suddenly you realize this just seemed to be endemic. Um, but then I pick up some of these things of people, let me put it this way, who weren't convicted of a felony and therefore shamed, but simply accused of a felony, so to speak, or a violation of the hashtag MeToo movement. And they were sort of tried, condemned, and sentenced, and there was no evidence or any, you know, so to speak, due process. I was actually sensitized to this by a female faculty member I was chatting with who was pointing this out about anxiety about where some of these things are going. So it seems to me like there's a danger when you talked about the objective part of shame when you do something that's actually wrong relative to the community. One of the things it seems like is particularly prone to happen on the internet is that we are losing any attachment to the objective part and shaming just gets a life of its own. And then even to push back on it makes you another object of shame because, oh, you don't believe in the hashtag me too problem. So at some point I'm like, how do we even have a conversation about this in that environment. Mm -hmm. So, Obi-Wan, you're my, my only hope. How do I solve this problem? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to solve the problem. Uh, but this much seems right, that um, if, you're, if you're thinking about the shame and honor dynamic, one of the things, it seems to me, that got discovered uh, pretty early on in the Me Too movement is that you don't have to be convicted of uh, harassment or sexual misconduct in order to be an object of shame in uh, contemporary Western culture. You need only to be accused. Uh, and if you're accused, for better or worse, if you're accused, okay. you, will, you will lose credit. You'll be, you'll be uh, socially discredited in, in communities that matter to you. I think that was discovered and then it was deployed uh, as an instrument mm -hmm. to fuel um, a social movement. I think those are just the facts on the ground. It's an interesting moral question whether that was um, uh, a good idea, a bad idea, legitimate, illegitimate. Uh, what, what seems unquestionable is that it was discovered and it was deployed. Yeah. Well, listen, we, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, what I love about the book is that you apply it to some interesting ways. One, your reading of The Prodigal Son is just, was really interesting. And then you actually bring up the topic of white shame which we thought we would want to jump in on because it was a really interesting uh, take on it uh, that we thought we'd like to explore more. So we'll pick that up yeah. on the second part of this podcast uh, with Greg Tanelzoff, one of our colleagues here at Biola University, and we'd like to thank you for joining us here on the Winsome Conviction podcast. Uh, if you'd like to hear more, we'd encourage you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, or check us out at the winsomeconviction.com website. And we're grateful for your partnership with us and joining in with us in this ongoing conversation about how we can form and communicate Winsome Convictions. So join us for round two with Dr. Greg Tanelzoff.